Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Watching these again made me realize this. In some ways, I think within these kinds of underground films, there are two kind of key strands. On the one hand, you have um, this kind of Orientalist fantasy that, I mean, was so clear in both of these films tonight. But then you also have this very tough... um, I mean, if you think of like Kenneth Anger's Scorpio Rising, you have this very tough urban kind of street culture, leather jackets, biker looks, that sort of thing. So one of them is um, much dreamier and, again, I mean, maybe problematically Orientalist, and the other one was much more rooted, I think, in, an, in a kind of an urban street culture. And in many ways, I think in these two, well, especially in Lupe, I mean, they kind of come together, those two, those two extremes in many ways. Um, so... I think if you, I mean, I don't know how many of you have been following this whole program, but I think, you know, Marquette did recognize in this something that really does percolate throughout this entire history. I mean, really, from the beginning of cinema, you know, celluloid and fabric were kind of united in many ways because, you know, you have these early Salome dances and you have abstract movement, which, of course, is one of the rudimentary and wonderful things about cinema. Um, long before Hollywood and the studio system came in and introduced a very specific kind of narrative. And then in these experimental films from the 60s, um, I think a lot of these filmmakers were really rediscovering just that. What I mean, Ron, in his uh, essay in the catalog, um, refers to what Tom Gunning has called the cinema of attractions. So a cinema that wasn't so much invested in story and plot or even in character specifically, but much more in, um, you know, gesture, movement, fantasy, um, and something that's a little bit harder to contain within, um, you know, a specific narrative. So, you know, hopefully, I hope you enjoy these films as much as I do. I mean, I think they're incredible, but we're also very lucky to have Ella Traiano and um, Augusto Machado, who have been involved with Jack Smith, in fact. And, I mean, were you involved with Jose Rodriguez Soltero as well? No. No, okay. Um... And I think, you know, Jack Smith is the sort of specter in this program. I mean, we're not actually, we didn't just see his films, of course, although Chum Lum um, was dealing with, you know, the kind of circle around Jack right after he shot Normal Love and actually I think during the shoot of Normal Love. So I think he was, um, he has been screened in this season as well. So I think we probably will talk quite a bit about Jack, even though we haven't actually just seen his films, but I think he really does kind of overshadow them. Um, but Ron, maybe, I don't know, do you want to quickly outline, I mean, your argument in this uh, I don't know how many people have had time to read it, but I mean, you know, he addresses both of these. But you've been a, a major factor in bringing Lupe and Jose's work back into the public eye and into the academic world as well. So, I mean, how did you kind of rediscover these films? And and then we'll get on to the costume element in a second. Well, um, I guess it was about ten years ago um, I put together a conference at the University of Chicago on uh, post-war queer avant-garde cinema. And many of these films, um, I was more interested in the aesthetics more than sort of marking them as gay through the idea of subjectivity. It really is what we're talking about, this sense of of sort of the sensuousness that's suggested through fabric and color. And I think Chum Lum is just a great example of that. I mean, it's like entering uh, the harem uh, and and uh, taking LSD and sort of lingering there, you know, forever, if you could. Um, and so there is something, I think, suggested by the superimpositions, the fabrics, um, the color. 
uh, the movement of bodies, uh, the sense of touching between bodies um, that um, I, I sort of saw coming out of uh, these Maria Montez films and very similar, which are also, if any of you saw Cobra Woman, they're also, you know, again, this is kind of stuck in a Hollywood B aesthetic, but saturating the screen also with uh, fabrics and jewels and uh, uh, rugs and, and curtains and veils and, and sort of bodies that are moving in between and or, you know, covered by all of this kind of color fabric. Um, and so I, I saw these, these sort of wonderful connections between uh, what Jack Smith and even Mario Montez and Lupe sort of identify as a source of what they're doing, these B-Technicolor films with Maria Montez uh, in the 1940s. But of course, they're doing something different. Uh, and I wanted to understand that. And it goes sort of back to the point of, you know, like Chum Lum, emerging uh, yourself uh, into just the idea of, of the aesthetics of what you're seeing in these kind of cheesy Technicolor films that have narrative, um, that it's like uh, taking a, a moment, a few seconds of a Maria Montez film uh, and freezing upon that moment and stretching it into 45 minutes or a little bit like Flaming Creatures doing a similar thing of just kind of lingering in that space, lingering in that aesthetic, uh, escaping into it. Uh, and part of what I'm, I'm talking about in the um, essay that's um, you know edited for the catalog here, but also that will be coming out later this year in a in a larger catalog uh, for the film festival is to talk about the source of that aesthetic um, as far as a historical source through the Maria Montez, but also how within the moment uh, you can see this is like uh, low budget filmmaking at its lowest of of sort of a thrift culture brought you know to this kind of glorious. Uh, queer aesthetic of uh, going to uh, you know the thrift stores or Jack Smith and Augusto can talk to this specifically of being on the streets and digging in the trash you know and finding um, fabric you know or objects uh, uh, you, you could just see it in here I mean it's like balloons and and you know jewels that are clearly costume jewelry and other stuff but that they've elevated into this just kind of glorious aesthetic, um, a kind of thrift culture brought into this kind of beautiful psychedelic world. Yeah, I mean, um, there's another critic named Juan Suarez who's written a lot about, I mean, Jack Smith and this kind of filmmaking, and he makes the point that around this time in 1965, you know, Vogue, for instance, would have had like a huge feature on Scheherazadery, and it said, you know, clothes for the shake at home and this sort of thing. And so it was in the culture in general. It wasn't just in the underground, but the way it expresses itself, you know, I mean, in something like Vogue and, and um, very elite circles versus this kind of, as you say, this I'm scavenging on the street for thrift shop clothes. I mean, um, I think Mario Montez said very famously he never spent more than $50 a year on all this bling, you know? <laughs> it's amazing. Um, but, I mean, could you talk a little bit about, I mean, how Jack was approaching these costumes? Because there's inherent to almost everything he does. Could you talk about the glitter, too? Or later? The glitter and the goop, absolutely. And the gold. Oh, what should we address first? Well, maybe all just all of it. of it, but, like, how, I mean... 
when Jack was making these films, I mean, to what extent, you know, I mean, the costumes are absolutely crucial to the films. And I mean, they really overtake any sense of character or, you know, and because, I mean, most of you know this, I'm sure, but, you know, without Jack Smith, Warhol probably would not have made films as we know them. And I think, you know, Warhol then takes it back to the studio system almost in this kind of star system. But, um, you know, in Jack's films, I mean, the costumes almost went out over the people. And, I mean, how did he... I mean, as they were being kind of formed, how did this happen? Well, I st- first started seeing Jack. Uh, he was coming out of, dump- of the dumpster as I was climbing in. <laughs> and this happened regularly because on Crosby Street and Bleecker, the, the street that goes toward Howard at the end near Canal, fabric stores would throw out the, the ends of their fabric. And it was a field day of finding those last few yards in rolls. And... Uh, I didn't personally know Jack then, but this man was phenomenal. He would grab as much as he could and come out in the street and then tear off the fabric off the rolls and bundle them up and go back and try to grab others. And so I thought, he's got a system. (laughs) And so I started copying. But uh, once I got to know Jack, it's, uh, especially in Ron's film, the... The, the riches of fabrics and in context of textures and about uh, uh, the magic of, of dreams and opiums and orientalism uh, was so rich is that it really doesn't... The visualness with music, uh, it was like the effervescence of cigarette smoke but only in patterns and colors. And you were bombarded with uh, wonderful scents and smells. And uh, I must admit that this was the age of experimentation and drugs, the internal flight agencies that we all had communally expressed itself. When you walked into to his into his apartment, for example, when I met him, it was the end of the seventies, and he was living on First Street. But you were walking into his movie, and um, one of the amazing things about him is that everything about him was he he was completely different. It was entirely his world. He spoke differently. He dressed differently. His um, his apartment was a stage set, which was in process of being set up and being painted and uh, so that he could shoot his movie there. Um, About the costumes, before, you know, he was planning the Sinbad film, but he had a uh, a book in which he had the drawings of all of the costumes in the film, or at least the ones that he was up to. And he had pinned to each one of the the designs of each costume um, the material. And so he had already gone to the material, and they usually had two or three layers. So he cut them, and there were three layers with a pin through. And, um, you know, uh, he had, um, you know, it, it was this completely different world. I don't and what about Mario Montes? Because obviously he's the star of both of these films and a key ally of Jack's and all of this. Well, and, I mean, he also made his own clothes. But yes, but Mario Montes was Jack uh, Smith's muse, and that Mario, on his own, with his own innate talent, would uh, sew and create his own uh, costumes, uh, and quite alluringly, uh, and, and so original. If you saw stills of Mario, he would not really want to appear for a photograph or be filmed 
if he was not beautiful. And that definition would be his and, of course, Jack's. And um, it merged into film. And what you saw was wondrous and magical and uh, of another uh, 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 paradise. But I mean, he sort of got increasingly involved I mean, with the clothes, I think, Mario, no? I mean, I think when he started off, it was more about just kind of buying thrift shop creations and things like that. But gradually, I mean, he really was forming his own look in many ways. Uh, Yes. And also, uh, Jack and Mario were very aware of Vogue magazine and would would laugh and scoff at uh, whatever the designer X, Y, or Z is, look what they're doing in Paris and what they're charging and we could just find this fabric on the street and wrap and drape it ourselves with safety pins. And often uh, Jack did marvelous things with layers and nets and, and what have you, and um, sometimes uh, Salvation Army if he felt he was going to have a, a little budget. But Mario himself has said that uh, often some of the things that Jack would uh, set him up for him were a little bit strange for him. And they even had this tug of war and fights. And this is coming from Mario himself. This is not something Jack ever talked about, because I met Jack after, after, way after Mario. But uh, Mario himself talks about how long it would take for any one of these scenes, and that sometimes they would spend the entire Sunday getting dressed, and then they would realize that Mario had to leave at 10.30 because he had to work the next day. So they had to abandon and then start again the next weekend from scratch. So... Yes, is uh, uh, with Jack, once you were in his studio or his presence, uh, time did not exist. And often you didn't realize, because he had blacked out windows and what have you, is, and, uh, that how time had passed. And in draping and getting ready for uh, a shoot or a scene is um, time had passed. And sometimes we would leave on a weekend, and what, why is it so light out? Well, it's 7 o'clock, and, and we haven't shot yet. And he wasn't ready because he hadn't loaded the camera. And it would be a little frustrating. But you, had to, uh, you understood you were in the presence of a genius and that uh, whatever it took to attain his goals, you went with it. Although Mario did have a timetable because he had to work the next day. But on weekends, he was a little more liberal. Just, just to note, um, the uh, Lupe film is a Mario Montez film. I meant uh, all of the costumes he designed himself. And in fact, Jose Rodriguez Sotero gives him credit that it's Montez creations yes. uh, that are credited with the fashions in it. But it is interesting to see who collaborates on these films, too, because, I mean, you know, Tony Conrad, who did the sound for Chumlum, I mean, you know, on any given day, I mean, he was doing this from, say, four to five, and then he was running back across town to work with Lamont Young on minimalist music. So I think the fact that, you know, this is, like, right in the middle of the crucible of minimalism in this city, and yet all of this, I mean, maximalism is also going on at the same time. Um, You know, and I think it's an interesting notion that this, I mean, comes out right at this particular moment in New York. I think Jack was a little bit more minimalist. He had almost every, every single thing that he included had a specific meaning for him. And he kept on using themes consistently. So I think even though he embraced the Baroque, I don't think it's quite the same style, for example, that, uh, that Chumlum has. 
This is something we were talking about outside. I don't know that any of you were here last night, but we screened two films by Stephen Arnold, who was um, on the West Coast, and he was very involved, um, really, with the origins of the Coquettes in San Francisco, of which um, we have a member on stage. And, um, you know, it's interesting for those of you who've seen the Coquettes documentary by David Weissman, because there's a moment, you know, when the Coquettes come to New York for the first time, and they were, you know, I mean, everyone that mattered in New York was in the audience at that first performance, and then completely hated it, like, didn't get it at all. And because at that point, you know, I mean, drag in this city was professional. I mean, you had to sing, you had to dance, you had to kind of, like, create, inhabit this identity, like, a, usually a specific identity that was already formed by Hollywood. And then suddenly the Coquettes come along, and it's much more freeform, like Chumlam, you know, I mean, these everything begins to blur and identities, fabric, clothes, costumes, genders, everything. And so could you talk a little bit maybe about, I mean, if there were distinctions between the two coasts, which I suspect there were. Well, I'd like to point out that uh, Hibiscus from New York, who started the Angels of Light, I've worked with him here in New York, he went to San Francisco and formed the Cockettes. And uh, uh, Hibiscus was... uh, what the other Cockettes thought was was too dictatorial. He was a director, he wrote the book, he was the star, and there was no democracy. And uh, with the uh, out there, um, as, um, as Rumi Cockett would say, was one night we came on stage to do a show, a structured show, and suddenly there were 56 people on drugs behind him <laughs> in their own... Movie, <laughs> and he he and Hibiscus quit the show. But with this freedom, it was seeded that the Cockettes became freeform, very democratic, and went on to express themselves in many ways. Now, uh, uh, Truman Capote and so many people went on the Tonight Show talking about the Cockettes. You can't believe it. Uh, it, San Francisco's like a twilight zone. You can't believe what you saw. You didn't have to be on drugs. They did it for you. <laughs> and so they were so hyped uh, to come to the Anderson Theater on 2nd Avenue and 4th Street is that uh, Hawk downtown I thought, uh, oh boy, they must be something because everyone's talking about them. And... Uh, the big deal on Park Avenue, if you said you were a coquette, you got invited to uh, a great dinner because <laughs> you, you were some curiosity on Fifth Avenue and Park Avenue. And there were downtown uh, New York queens who would say they were coquettes. they put on an outfit, throw on some glitter, and, and talk about, oh, oh, San Francisco, so glorious, but I like New York. And uh, that it... it was so strange because on opening night uh, uh, that uh, everyone came and uh, so many people thought they should walk on water. And it was just a glorified musical and that there was talent and so forth. But a few minutes into the uh, opening act, Taylor Mead stands up and he said, bring on Jackie. Where's Jackie Curtis? Where's Hollywood? Where's Candy? And it sort of broke the mood. And after a few numbers, which I, I accepted totally as this was the Coquettes, uh, people started leaving. And unfortunately, because of the bad press and reviews, the Coquette uh, was going to make a grand tour of Europe <laughs> London, Paris, Berlin. Well, after those reviews, 
the bookings just canceled, and uh, the Cockettes had to go back to San Francisco, unfortunately. But could you maybe, I mean, in a sense, because I think the brief for this was to talk about costume and the queer aesthetic, and I mean, maybe could you talk about Jackie Curtis a bit? Because I think it's hugely relevant to the whole idea. Well, first, I think we we were talking about glitter outside that I would like to bring, that uh, I think it's acknowledged... uh, with John Vercross' Playhouse of Ridiculous and Charles Ludlum's Ridiculous Thatcher Company and people who were there, that Jack Smith uh, gave intent and meaning to glitter of how he used it and the angels of like the cockettes and so forth and John Vercross and so forth, uh, abundantly used glitter. And it was through Jack Smith's insistence that the glitter makers increased the range of colors and that after a while, there was a variety. And today you go to a party shop or what have you, and children's party, and you have a selection of, uh, of wonderful glitter, and there was a reason for that. <laughs> now, I forgot the actual just, question. Oh, just about Jackie Curtis, though. And I mean, the way costume and I mean, this kind yes. of brag well, aesthetic functioned. Well, well, Jackie Curtis was part of John McCarroll's Playhouse of Ridiculous, like Holly, and Jackie had her own look of 40s movie star, except torn stockings, uh, Miss Array, uh, clothing, uh, lips, eyes, glitter uh, on the cheeks and lips. And she wasn't pretending to be a woman. She felt like a woman, but looked not quite like a woman. <laughs> but downtown, as I used to say in the early days... Uh, Every, every day in Greenwich Village is Halloween, and we expressed ourselves, and that was a time of freedom. And it was uh, like you go to parties now and you see uh, Lady Gaga fans appearing in various places, but it was like that walking around all the time. Uh, but that, the glitter uh, added that little oomph to an outfit. I mean, if you had some out and threw it on your head and walked and, and you went to a subway or something, you'd get attention. But, I mean, the scenes that I've seen from Vain Victory, I mean, it looks like Jackie was just, like, dipped in some <laughs> sort of clear liquid with glitter. I mean, it's just, he's, like, coated in this stuff. So. He liked it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you've ever been around any of the people who used it, is you literally uh, digested it, and when you looked in the toilet bowl afterwards, it was there. And there, there are photographs uh, of people's... Um, <laughs> of deposits in commodes and they'd say oh they must have used red and green last night <laughs> I remember I was actually on a bus in London once with a friend who did a lot of drag and there were a bunch of kids wearing tons of glitter on the other side of the bus and he said get away from them you, that stuff's impossible to get off yes. you know but, um, but it, you know, it does continue to linger, I mean, in these films in other ways, which is, I mean, maybe a little more productive. Yeah. But, but another generation with uh, um, Lady Gaga, kids are starting to use it, and more power to them. I mean, it catches the light, it looks good, and it's a legacy for future generations. <laughs> Thank you. 
But then I also wanted to talk about maybe the Latin American angle, and especially in Lupe. And I mean, I don't know if this is something you really want to address or not, but it, it, I mean, I think a lot has been written now recently, I think especially again by Juan Suarez about, um, well, amongst other things, I know he has a PhD student working on the connections between Jack Smith and Elia Watisica, who was a Brazilian artist living here at the same time. And in some ways there was, if nothing else, a rivalry between the two of them. Um, but uh, Watisica also made a, a short, unfinished Super 8 film with Mario Montez as well. And and I think, I mean, there is this kind of notion of carnival. I mean, there are a lot of things going on in these films that it's not just about the Orient. I mean, it is actually about... I think the Latino influence was really crucial. Yeah. I mean, the fact that, you know, Jack used Mario, um, you know, he was one of the first people... I felt comfortable with him. And as a Cuban-American that looks darkish, um, that was not something... I, I, did, I, I didn't feel like an equal with most people. Jack made me feel like an equal, um, whether I was a wo- you know, as a woman. It it was he he had this incredible ability to deal with you as a, as an individual. He when you look at his films, they have people of color. It's one of the first times mm-hmm. that I have seen such a crazy. It was it's multi genders. You didn't know if it was a tit, a prick, or what what it was. It's like <laughs> everything is is in there. Every color. So. Um, I think that that attitude was interesting. We got into TIFFs because around the mid-'80s, I was, you know, labeled Latina. And so we used to kid around and say, well, the Latino, he goes, round, and he would tease me about it because he really hated these, all these labels. Um, talking about labels, you know, I loved it when he took out and he showed me the brassiere when he was so excited. I've made the brassiere for men. And it was this gorgeous uh, piece of material that really emphasized the chest. And I think that with his closing, it's, it's really interesting when we talk about drag, that his version of drag was a, a very different one. It was a, a kind of a male peacock. It, it was just different. And I, I think that's... Uh, and I love his little... If you, his little black... The cod pieces? Cod piece. Yes. Yeah, gorgeous. But I, I think it's also important to sort of distinguish between um, normal love, um, flaming creatures, chumlum, and Lupe, because Lupe being made by Jose Rodriguez Sotero with Maria Montez, you know, um, a loving tribute to Lupe Valles, and you listen to the music that's drawing upon sort of Latin American music, both sort of classical and popular, uh, that this... Latin influence really comes through in that film. In the earlier ones, there is still this kind of Arabian Nights, Orientalist, uh, strong component. So I think it's really a tribute to both Mario and Jose Rodriguez Sotero that they sort of bring this out more, even though it really is there in Jack Smith's films, but he's still sort of more interested in the Scheherazade, you know, um, uh, harem fantasy, I think, within those films. Maybe it's also interesting to compare Lupe to Warhol's Lupe as well. I mean, because he casts Edie Sedgwick, you know, who's clearly not Latina. (laughs) And um, Warhol's uh, Lupe is what, two long takes um, and isn't saturated with color, fabric, this kind of queer aesthetics that you see. Um, I mean, these are almost like, what, seven or eight 
uh, music videos that Jose Rodriguez makes in this kind of loving tribute to Lupe Valles. And there's this kind of changing energy, slim narrative, you know, celebration of the ascendance of, of Lupe, you know, to heaven at the very end in this incredible triple superimposition. Whereas Warhol's uh, Edie Sedgwick, you know, of for 30 minutes is taking drugs, getting drunk, and then finally collapses around the toilet. And it's it's kind of tragic. Uh, you're thinking not Lupe Valles. You're thinking poor Edie by the end of the film. No, oh. no cats perish either in the Warhol <laughs> no. version. I think. Oh, I, I'd like to add uh, for those who don't know that uh, Andy Warhol and Robert Wilson were regulars at Jack Smith's Oasis, and many people came to. Jack Smith's Oasis. He did 24-hour pieces. He did weekend uh, uh, pieces. He would sleep. He would play. Uh, he would take a bath. Uh, <laughs> Hawaiian music would be playing. Doris Day and so forth. It was a multimedia. And there are people who didn't get it who thought, when does the show start? <laughs> they didn't understand. But Robert Wilson and Andy Warhol... Uh, distilled and understood what Jack was doing for years is, oh, a 24-hour film, a 24-hour theater piece, and, and so forth. So I, I do, when I ever get an opportunity, point that out, and that uh, Jack Smith was the first one to use Superstar, and it was absorbed by Andy Warhol later. But also, I mean, he completely did... I mean, demolished the boundary between art and life yes. in many ways. I mean, which was obviously one of the key goals of 20th century art in general. And I think, I mean, Jack really did it. I mean, he got there. And I think something we were, again, talking about outside is that, um, I mean, you know, when you think of conventional theater or conventional cinema, you know, I mean, you don't think of costume as taking direction. You think of the actors as taking direction. But in, you know, my sense is that Jack was directing with costume. You know, I mean, the, the clothes, again, take over. And, and it, I mean, they have lives of their own. I mean, they behave... On their own. Well, he felt the fabric and colors and patterns had a life of its own and expressed beyond words like music, a feeling. And you could see that layer after layer and um, uh, just desire, hopes, dreams. I made a real mistake once because he wanted to have me take photographs of him. And he pretty much arranged everything in his head, but he didn't quite tell you everything. And we were going out at noon. He was dressed in this beige, gorgeous outfit, which was his uh, Jungle Jack outfit. And um, like an idiot, I didn't have daylight film. And I thought, oh, let me be cool. Let me be put some uh, tungsten film in it for artificial light. And when I got it back, he said, oh, what did you do, bake it? And, <laughs> and he, he was, he didn't get angry with me. We just went ahead and did it. But he had completely, I, you know, I didn't realize. It was noon, the sunlight was blasting. And, it, you know, he had picked the spot. And he knew what he was going to be wearing. And it was all a color-coordinated scene that he was presenting. Um, but how do you think, I mean, there's been so much made in the last few years. Anyway, a lot of young art, younger artists are, you know, I mean, really demonstrating their interest in Jack's work in particular. But, I mean, how, I mean, how has your involvement with him kind of filtered into your work, I mean, even now? I think, I don't think that's, for, you know, I adored him. I adored him as a friend. I had the greatest time being with him. Um, I, I think for me that's not, I don't think of it like that. What I think about is... Uh, 
you know, having worked with him and what that was like. For example, I kind of differ a little bit because I remember that when I would go out taking photographs with him, you know, I get there and I think, oh, photograph taking is about, oh, I get there and now 12 o'clock we're going to go out and, you know, I had that kind of mentality. And he sort of hit, you know, he sort of did everything to kind of blanket, you know, to have a blank space and get me to pull back. And so, you know, we'd lie around, he'd take a bath, you know, he'd feed me. Then the time would come, uh, he'd show me designs. Then the time would come when we'd smoke uh, pot and you'd, we'd look at, he'd show me some previous slides. So, because this was getting me into the mood and playing the music. And then, you know, finally we'd go, we'd drag this huge duffel bag that he had filled with all the costumes, and I'd think, and everybody would say, my God, it took you all day, and all that. But we'd get there, and we, you know, we were shooting at that time in, um, on the West Side Pierce, on a beach. And we'd take out the little palm tree, and then the little prop of the hand, which was a cut-off Halloween hand, because a hand was grabbing the envelope that said, the, for the landlord because this was all about the landlord stealing. It was a, a real content behind everything. And then he'd throw the little gold glitter. And, you know, as we were really hitting the peak moment, it was magic hour. So I really almost always got the sense that he had just this, you know, when I would come in, he would show me, um, you know, a book with the drawings of the costume and little cutouts with the three layers. You know, he, he spent his time preparing. He always said that 75% of the, the work is in the title. So if he <laughs> got that title. Um. And, I mean, did he, I mean, we all know, obviously, he loved Marie Montez and a lot of the B-movies. Um, but did he talk about, you know, people like Cocteau or Kenneth Anger or other experimental filmmakers he, very or, much? You know, he would talk constantly about who he liked and who he didn't like, who was important, who wasn't. I mean, I can't go through it, but... You know, John Zorn has, I remember, we went to see Maria Montez with him, and he goes, oh, my God, he's taking out his hanky and crying. He would literally cry at the sight of these gorgeous 35 millimeter. And when he started doing slides, it was because he just loved the, you know, it was the only way that he could afford. He didn't want to do little, you know, he'd do Super 8, he'd do little 16, but he wanted the 35. And so, you know, then he went into the slides, and he built these, you know, I forget what you asked me. I forgot. <laughs> I, I was most, I mean, just interested if he, when he talked about what he liked, I mean, did he mention other experimental filmmakers like Kenneth Anger or mm. Cocteau? Mm. I was just going to say in his essay, he doesn't, but he certainly mentions von Sternberg, yes. other yes. Hollywood directors. I mean, oh. you know, so yeah. there is Hollywood a sense that in his writing, yes. But I mean, because I mean, Kenneth Anger for me is one of the other, I mean, kind of key figures in this particular program. And I mean, if you think of, of Puce Moment, which I think was shown here, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, again, costume is the star. And um, he, I don't recall him mentioning Kenneth Anger at all. No. I do recall that when, the day that um, Warhol died, I went to have breakfast with him. And of course, I was going, but Jack, you've got to like this, or you've got, he was so anti Jack. And finally said, well, what about the color in his paintings? He goes, well, ooh, okay. You know, to color, he, he exceeded a little bit. But, um, you know, he, he loved uh, painters that we would not be thinking of. He really cherished, uh, he, he really believed in um, the apprentice system and in, uh, God, what is the word that I'm missing? He, he thought that there was a, a lot of art, was a lot of idea-driven, and he liked craft. 
He was really big into craft. He loved great textiles from Italy. He, you know, he, he would love everything like that. Uh, and he did love the painter Mary Cassatt, which amazed me that he, he sat me down and we hadn't smoked yet. And he named... <laughs> And he named paintings, and he knew where it was hanging and who owned it. It was just amazing. It came from left field, and I thought, I'm really tripping. Jack, <laughs> Jack is talking about Mary Cassette. And this went on and on, the texture of the dress of, that the subject was wearing. And I thought, this man, awareness uh, of the eye and patterns and colors, uh, it was all in there in the great scheme. And does anybody out there have any questions at all? Right in the front. Part of the, uh, the look of the Lupe film, Don't Stock, Shut Up, could you comment on that? You know, I'm sorry, I have it in my notes. I, I just, by memory, don't know. And it says something about my knowledge of film. <laughs> it's, Reversal? Um, I don't remember. I really don't. Um, but... Um, it really captured these brilliant colors, and this is what Rodrigo Sotero was going for. I mean, the reds are amazing. I think everybody shakes their heads. Yes, yes. The, um, what's his other amazing film? Um, with the Jerovi? Yeah, Jerovi as well. Is, I mean, similar. It's this guy who, I mean, kind of, is again, running through Central Park. He had a thing with parks. Uh, but with his unbelievable costumes, and, I mean, everything is, like, super, super saturated. So it's something, I mean, like Jack, I mean, he was very invested in color. There's a question in the middle. Well, this is something I was actually on a panel recently. I'm in Dubai, of all places, about fashion films. <laughs> and to me, fashion films, um, and I don't mean what Marquette is doing with this program, which is, I think, entirely more sophisticated, but fashion films have now begun to kind of take on the role that music videos had at a certain point, which is essentially take the entire history of experimental cinema and turn it into a commercial. And um, so, you know, MTV did that in the 80s with the music industry, and now I think, you know, the fashion industry, and I, th I would say with less creativity, frankly, is doing the same. And somehow, I think that the music video industry was incredibly creative and sophisticated at the beginning, and then it became much less so when MTV went mostly into heavy metal at a certain point. Although Lady Gaga seems to be ripping that off now, <laughs> too, so I don't know. But... Um, but because I think a lot of people in the fashion world, you get fashion photographers who don't know anything about cinema, and you know, they're given a camera to make a short film, and they don't have any knowledge of this kind of work. And that's why I think it's fundamentally important that you know, these kinds of films need to be better known than they are. And you know, for so long, they just, I mean, they were rarely shown, if ever, and usually at anthology film archives or someplace where many people don't go. And so, I mean, you know, this history is so rich, and it really needs to be much, much better known. Um, but, you know, ultimately there was, I mean, I think hopefully we've made it clear that there was no commercial agenda. I mean, this really was done on the street with no budget, and they were trying to express a very, very different worldview than what Vogue magazine was doing with their Scheherazade spread. So, I mean, it was anti-commercial, if anything. Um, I just wanted to point out that many early video makers, uh, music video makers for MTV, were influenced by Kenneth Anger, Scorpio Rising, The Beatles, Help, uh, Hard Day's Night, uh, and so this early 60s cinema where music is sort of driving uh, a portion, like a segment of the film, to where it's not narrative. It's the beat of the, of the music and the energy of the music that's being captured 
or is driving the set of images that we're looking at. And so these are films that are heavily influencing what emerges as music videos. But, you know, I still think the best fashion films in many ways were, again, you know, the Salome dances at the very beginning of cinema. And it doesn't get any better than that. And in a way, I think that's what these guys rediscovered. I mean, just like the glorious you know, wonder and uh, marvel of fabric and color and glitter and just all these things in motion in front of you, you know, in this kind of suspended... Yes, just like uh, Warhol's Kiss films, it, you know, discovered the very first cinema, the Kiss film, you know, mm-hmm. so... But, I mean, in a way, Ella's right. In a way, it is a kind of minimalism because it does kind of... It is reductive in its own way in that it kind of, you know, it strips out all the other elements, and it, it really ends up focusing on surface. But, I mean, as we all know from Andy Warhol, you know, surface is not always as superficial as you might think. So, <laughs> Anybody else? Oh, in the back? My first response is I think it's become a shame in the art world that to be political art, it has to reference a specific political situation. I mean, putting a brush to canvas is a political gesture, as far as I'm concerned. So, and I think you know these films are deeply, deeply political. Um, but I mean, I mean, that's interesting to me is that you know, I mean, both in Warhol's Factory and Stephen Arnold's, um, I forgot what he called it, but I mean, his salons, and I would assume at the Oasis as well. You know, there was this complete leveling of social hierarchy. So you had aristocrats next to, you know, people off the street. And, I mean, that was the kind of glory of the situation. So, I mean, there's that element of, you know, kind of a political approach just to life and to, I mean, and to a different notion of society. But, I mean, you guys are a much better place to talk about. Well, I was going to say, taking it a little bit, you know, you, you baffled me when you asked me about the Latino connection because I just heard about these films um, a about maybe at a year ago, and I just saw Solteros' film at Columbia, and I remember Francis Negron calling, did you know this person? What do you know about? It's like, this is very new. So my entry into some of this, I mean, this is a problem that we have in the Latino community. We really don't know, we don't have our history all put together, so... Um, I mean, because there were so many people, you know, coming through, like Huatisica in particular, but I mean, there were a lot of Latinos coming through town. And I mean, you know, to what extent they were all engaging with this world, I don't know. Right, but we didn't know about this film. This film is... It was forgotten until... Completely. um, You know, basically 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Jose Rodriguez Sotero stopped making films about the mid-70s. In fact, he turned to making political documentaries, taught a little bit. Uh, on Puerto Rican actions in New York City, um, and he could no longer make money at it. And he went to work for uh, the city government in disability services, and that's where he was uh, when I found him about 10 years ago uh, and asked him to come to the University of Chicago and show this amazing film, Lupe, uh, that um, 
the um, Pompidou had acquired a copy of, of this, and I read about it online. And the only copy of the film in the U.S. was Jose Rodriguez himself, who was carrying this film and protecting it. And he had the only copy. And I asked him if he would come and show his copy. And he came, but he was kind of shy. And it's like, why would anybody be interested in this film? And you can imagine this group of film students uh, seeing this film for the first time were just completely blown away, particularly by these triple superimpositions when Mario Montez is making love and then at the end... Um, and, and so he became, I think, braver about showing it. Douglas Crimp had him up to Rochester, and then Anthology restored the film. Uh, and at that point, it's, it's become sort of known, I would say. I think the other thing that blows my mind about Lupe is the soundtrack, not just the music, which also is amazing. But, um, I mean, like that scene when um, Lupe is being interviewed, and you never actually, I mean, you know, the, the sound is totally out of sync, and it's this kind of different layers of recorded voices, even though, you know, he's kind of mouthing the interview. And, I mean, if you take it back, I mean, you know, let's not forget, you know, I mean, um, we're in a luxurious position for representations of queer culture and queer aesthetics, because for a long time, you know, this stuff was not recorded, and it wasn't, I mean, there was no history, as you say, that was in any way put together for people to make any sense out of. And if you think about, I mean, one of the very first novels that really expressed, um, like, daily gay life in Greenwich Village was a, a book called The Young and the Evil by Charles Henry Ford and Parker Tyler, which was banned and boycotted for decades. And, um, you know, interestingly, Charles Henry Ford's lover was a a painter named Pavel Chilichev, and he did a a triptych at uh, that MoMA owns um, called Hide and Seek. And for those of you that followed the David Vonjurovich controversy a couple of months ago, um, the, the name of the show from which that video was pulled was, in fact, called Hide and Seek, um, named after this painting. But, um, I mean... Before abstract expressionism, Chilichev, I mean, that was the painting you went to see at MoMA. I mean, that's what, it was incredibly well known. And then suddenly, you know, abstract expressionism, which was certainly not a homosexual movement, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, wiped that painting off the map. And nobody, nobody heard of Chilichev again after that for a long time. And so the way in which The Young and the Evil kind of deals with I mean, it's very difficult to read at times because it's, I mean, language was not direct because it had to be coded and it had to be difficult and it had to be hidden in a way. And I think, I mean, that's really, really telling. And so the way the the voices work in Lupe, I think, is incredible and really uh, says a lot about the history of being able to express oneself or not and and how that might have been muffled by a society. It's interesting that Caleb Lindsay is using that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good example, actually. Okay. Well, thanks again to David and to Marquetta for the invitation, and thanks to all of you for coming. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.